Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Worcester Culture Watch, a podcast connecting you with the local culture scene in Worcester. Arts, entertainment, music, and more. Worcester Culture Watch, from the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. Hello and welcome to Worcester Culture Watch on Telegram.com. I'm Victor Infante, entertainment editor for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. Later in the program, I'll be catching up with reporter Richard Duckett. But first, I'm here with reporter Craig Seaman. Hi, Greg. Hey, uh, Victor. How are you today? I'm doing well. And, you know, it's a nice spring day outside, but on TV, winter is definitely here. It's here to stay for a little while, at least for five more weeks, right? <laughs> We've got five more weeks. Five more weeks. Of course, we're talking about Game of Thrones, which... and and. Uh, this was this was the cool. I enjoyed the episode. It was a setup episode. It was what it was. But the really impressive part was coming into the office the next morning, where nobody has ever watched any. Never seems to be watching anything I watch. I never talk about TV with most people because they don't. They, I'm watching like weird BBC shows, and um, <laughs> I came in here and almost everybody was talking about Game of Thrones, and it's been a long time since I've been that seen that happen. Yeah, I think it's safe to say uh, when this show's over, this will be the last type of show we have that we have such a communal experience because TV is so fragmented. It's possible, but, you know, I don't know if that's, you know, people said that about The Sopranos, and then we got Game of Thrones. Right. Um, I don't know if I necessarily believe that. I think... I mean, TV, you're correct. TV is fragmented. Right. It's not like the good old days where everybody was watching MASH. Yeah. You're <laughs> not going to get another mash fi- finale of MASH or Seinfeld, but the numbers on this is incredible. Yeah, no, it, it's true. It really is. But I don't know if, you know, I think the next phenomenon, whatever, might be like a YouTube show or be some weird streaming show, but I think we'll be at the place where that happens. I think there will always be something that that will come along every few years or so that will draw everybody together in interest. But, you know, it's going to be few and far between. Right. And, and I'll admit, this is going to be a hard one to top. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's safe to say uh, uh, when final credits roll on the season, series finale of May 19th, there will be a lot of tears shed, not just for the characters who have perished and the actors who played them, but for the end of the last great scripted series on television. Mm, possibly. Possibly. At least for now. I mean, yeah. we got nothing that's... Everything else is pale in comparison. Well, numbers-wise, yes. I but mean, I mean, but uh, we are living in the golden age of television. There is so much But I mean, as television. everybody watching it. Yeah. I mean... That's, <laughs> that's the problem. Everybody's so... The, the audience is so staggered. So, But for fear of going around in circles on this, um, what did you feel... How did you feel about the opening? Well... You're talking about the credits? or oh, No, the show. Well, oh, oh I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what we're here to talk well, about. Well, we can talk about the, oh, we can talk about the opening, no, too, I because mean, even that was starting. Yeah, I, was... I mean, from the opening credits showing the map of the Seven Kingdoms with the wall broken mm-hmm. and the words freezing over, 
to the very last scene. This episode was certainly a keeper. Oh, yeah, definitely. And Jon Snow, I don't think this is a spoiler, is the true heir of the Iron Throne, and the rest of episodic television has a home in the bowl of the porcelain throne, a.k.a. the toilet, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. All right. Well, but just really quick, let me go. Let me stop for one second here. Yeah. Um, for those who've been a little confused by what's going on in Game of Thrones, let me recap really quickly how we got to this point. Once upon a time, the Targaryen family ruled all of Westeros. Then what was the news was that Rhaegar Targaryen, the, the son of the Mad King, who wasn't called that yet, I believe he was called Aegon, actually, right. um, it kidnapped Lyanna Stark, the sister of Ned Stark. Right. Now, what <laughs> this evidently that was not the case that Rhaegar and Lyanna ran off together and got married and had a son. Now, never mind, they've never really gotten out around the fact that Rhaegar actually already had a wife who was murdered, actually. <laughs> that was a whole separate story. Um, but yeah, so that child, Aegon Targaryen, sixth of his name, is Jon Snow. Right. And Ned Stark covered up his parentage to protect him because right. he was actually his sister's child and not his. So for those out there who have been confused by this, Jon Snow is Aegon Targaryen, heir to the thro Iron Throne. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> and the episode, uh, Victor, as you know, begged the question, is there a good time to tell the king of the north that his whole life is a lie? And the man he most admires, Ned Stark, in, uh, was uh, a royal fibber. <laughs> well, I mean, I think Sam Tarly made a the really good point that he, he, was, he wasn't lying. He was protecting him. Right. Um, and he was lying to a degree, but you know, he was, he, he had a very good reason because right. Robert Baratheon, the king after, after the Mad King died, that's good. And that's actually an important bit, the Mad King dying, but we'll get to that in a bit. Um, was on a tear. If we remember the first season, you know, he, you know, actually it was Cersei was having his, um, bastard children rounded up and killed. Right. Um, Gendry being another one of the <laughs> one of those actually. Gendry, of course, being the blacksmith. Right. But um, but he was actually survived, and he's in Winterfell now, like every other character that's <laughs> that has even a snigger of honor or conscience. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and on uh, on Sam telling revealing the big news, I don't think any other character could have done it. No, because obviously. I think <laughs> uh, it would have been an episode of Kill the Messenger if uh, it was anybody else. But cute and cuddly Sam was perfect to tell it, and he has nothing to gain from it other than telling the truth. Right, and of course, they, you know, those are very bonded characters. You know, Bran could have done it, but you know, let's face it, Bran's a little creepy right now. <laughs> John might have believed him, but it wouldn't have gone over quite yeah. as well. And um, and John. Obviously, is wrestling with this. Obviously, and uh, we don't. I, we don't know how he's going to tell Daenerys or when. Yeah, and you know he exclaimed this, or uh, mustering up the words to say it's treason, and Sam uh, told him, you know, it's the truth. You gave up the crown to save your people. Would she do the same? And I think we all know the answer to that. Indeed. Well, you, 
we think we do, but Daenerys has Daenerys has risen to moral challenges before. Now, I don't know. I'm not saying that she would or she wouldn't. That's all. I think that's ultimately what's good, the question that's going to define her, and she that hasn't. She hasn't been in a position to be tested on yeah. that yet. And Sam also had, oh, by the way, your smoking hot girlfriend turned my father and my favorite uncle into Chaco Burkett. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, where is hell? <laughs> I love the actor who plays Sam Darley, and I'm blanking on his name at the moment. But um, That's Mr. John uh, Bradley. John Bradley, okay. One of the few names that's not One of the say. best <laughs> one-minute acting jobs I have ever seen on television. The look on his face when it was revealed that his father died, which was pained and still heartbroken, no matter how bad the relationship right. was. And then that light joke is like, well, at least I could go back home now that my brother is Lord. <laughs> and the absolute devastation when he learned that his brother also died. Yeah, That was, and he did it so wordlessly and so with so much dignity and it was heartbreaking and actually i kind of want to kudos on to daenerys for just straight up telling him no (laughs) Uh, no, i mean no no ducking about it nothing just straight up this is what happened yeah that was one of the many solid scenes and the thing that you might like you explained take for granted yeah this this was an episode about the little scenes yeah absolutely and um i mean after the big reveal which was to anybody watching this show, we already knew this. Um, and this will be, though, is a very crucial piece in a powder cake pass waiting to explode in the present. Oh, yeah. You could, in my opinion, you could sum up the season eight premiere with three killer, if looks could kill moments. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I'm sure you probably agree with me. The first is with Sansa's. Uh, chilly reception to Daenerys. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, almost as if she sees the mother of dragons as a romantic rival for her brother Jon Snow, which I don't think is the case, but this is Game of Thrones, so that's never fully out of question. On a more humorous note, you had the, had Drogon, mm-hmm. the dragon's hateful stare, a watchful stare at Jon Snow while he gets some sugar from the flying reptile <laughs> uh, master. And last but not least... The cloak Jamie Lannister scene. That uh, was, I think that is a scene we have been waiting for since the very first episode of the <laughs> show. Um, we've always wondered if the worst thing that Jamie Lannister has ever done was in that first episode. Correct. When he pushed Bran out of a window, for those who don't <laughs> remember that far back. Um to kill him to cover up that he was having a relationship with his sister, Cersei Lannister. Or actually, her name was Cersei Bar- Baratheon back then. And, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. But um, everybody's always called her Cersei Lannister because, well, check it out. Um, but yeah, so we have, Jamie has gone through this amazing redemption arc. Right. And he has been haunted. He has probably not really. He has not really had two thoughts about that oh, incident. Absolutely not. Since it, it got brought up once, sort of. Yeah, that's like it was like a rite of passage. And nobody knows. knew he did it, right? Except he and Cersei. Um. So, so yeah, he, he's not really had any. He's any dealings with that incident. He's paid no price for it. He's right. paid price for other things. And the big one, of course, was killing. 
the Mad King, which was happened before this started. It, I hate to keep going back into the history, <laughs> but we're at the point now in the show where that all matters. And I think we're getting into the crux of not just of who Jamie Lannister is, right. but what the show is about. Jamie was a member of the King's Guard, which was sworn to not marry, sworn to not take lands, and to protect the king. And the king was about to basically blow up the city and kill thousands. And Jamie offed him to stop that. It was the most honorable and dishonorable thing he has ever done. Right. Um, he has been cursed as the Kingslayer ever since, even if he was <laughs> because he did save so many people and that because he did, you know, end up benefiting King Baratheon when he got King Robert Baratheon when he got in. He, you know, was sort of taken back into the fold, taken back into the King's Guard, et cetera, et cetera. But he's he it really didn't come back until his relationship with um, Brianna of Tarth, who wasn't in this episode, but will be right. soon. So when he told, shared all of this. So I really, you know, I get right into it. I really, people play the who's going to end up on the throne game. Right. That's not the point. The point is this is a show about an empire ending. Right. It doesn't, you know, anybody who ends up on the throne is, doesn't matter. Right. The Empire's dying. The Empire's pr- effectively dead. Yeah. The only thing left to do is, you know, protect the people that live there. Right. So that's that's where I stand. And I'm not yeah. entirely sure how they're going to get to that ending. Yeah. But, but I mean, what a great scene. Jamie comes into the brilliant. courtyard. Uh, he's cloaked. Uh, you knew who was him. I didn't know it was him. I knew it was him. Uh, I thought it might be Alpha from The Walking Dead or something, or maybe uh, Thanos from uh, The Avengers. No, no, no. That's one of the few things Disney does not own. <laughs> and he's so happy that he gets in there undetected. I mean, he's he's pleased with himself. Oh, yeah. And he's actually there for a noble reason. Sure. And then he locks eyes with the all-knowing, all-seeing, three-eyed raven. Yeah, and even if you didn't know the backstory, which is crucial, yeah. you knew something was up. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, what do you say to the guy? Nice wheels? <laughs> I mean, talk about an awkward scene for the yeah, guy. There's and a it me- was a perfect end into a perfect episode. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. It was, and it uh, it very much whetted the appetite for what comes next yeah. because he has to face, Jamie now has to face Bran, whom he pushed out a window. <laughs> he, he has to face Daenerys, whose father he killed. Ta-da! <laughs> Game of Thrones. I mean, he's the one I'm actually rooting for in the show. Well, I mean, he is, uh, and this is a credit to the actor. He is an immensely likable character. Yes, he is. He is. You can't help but not like him a little bit, even though you know he's a hor- He has done horrible things and has probably not paid entirely enough of a price for that yet. But I get the feeling we'll be. He'll be paying paying that price in battle very soon. <laughs> Because not next episode, but the one after that is, is... That's the big one. That's the Battle of Winterfell, and that is the longest continuous battle scene ever aired on television. How long of an episode do we know? Um, well over an hour. I know that. Wow. So we're basically talking a feature film. Right yeah, there. and as we both recall, and I, I've said this before, I, the Battle of the Bastards from a few seasons back... Mm-hmm. Arguably the best battle sequence since, in my opinion, since Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Yeah, and and that was a that was a feature film. Oh, absolutely. That had millions for a budget. Yeah, and I told people, okay, you've never seen the show, you're not into this stuff. Watch this episode. 
Yeah. Let's watch a self-contained episode. You're going to be blown away. And I think that's going to be the thing about this whole season. Um, great start. Subtleties were, were in the mix uh, all the way through it, but it was solid stuff and uh and it was i mean it was it was a motive and there was some payoff for people that have been watching for a long time i think it would have been odd i i question people who are starting now (laughs) (laughs) it's like why why are you starting with this episode no it's 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 not a good episode but But, as i was telling people and i uh who might be just jumping on late and i jumped on late i told them just watch last season Last season was solid. Even if you don't know all the backstories yeah. of the people, you can tell who's the bad people, who's the good people, most of the agendas, and then go backwards from there. And then hopefully you meet up because you'd be ashamed. You want to catch you want to catch this bandwagon before it's out of the gate. Yeah, good. yeah, definitely. And it you know, and this this episode did have a lot of callbacks to the first season, to the first episode, right. in fact. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's. It's a strange phenomenon, this, the, the thought that this has been a weird process because I've read all the books. I've actually even read one of the like, histories of the book that George R. R. Martin wrote, the one of the Targaryen family, the rise, and that's been informing a lot of my thinking lately. Oh, okay. Uh, Fire and Blood, it's called. But um, it's, it's, it's weird because there was this point where I was ahead of everybody. And then... The shows went past where the We're books past, are because yeah. George R. R. Martin, R. R. Martin writes very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> and there are still two books left to be published. Um, and so then it became a different experience because I was, instead of being ahead of everybody and constantly going, oh, wait, wait, the good scene's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> um, the next thing that happened, you know, we became this sort of, I was in it with everybody else. Right. And I was well, like, that's, everybody that's was, what's so enjoyable about it. It was. It, and that, that was something transformative about that. So, I don't know. I'm very excited about what's to come. Um, any predictions? Like I said, my favorite, my favorite, my dream scenario would be uh, uh, Jamie is the last Lannister standing. And I would love it if Jamie was there with his pint sized philosophical brother. And they share the last scene, almost like a Dr. Ross, Dr. Green moment for me, uh, sharing a loving embrace, drinking some ale, while the whole kingdom's burning behind them, and having a hearty laugh at the expense of their wicked sister, Cersei. <laughs> That's what would be my dream. But I have no predictions on this. I, think, uh, I mean, I guess the safe one is Jon Snow is going to be, though. Yeah, but I, something tells me that's not going to happen. And I've been, I've been thinking King Arthur lately, and I've, I've been thinking a lot about the King Arthur mythos, where King Arthur rose to power and Camelot, Camelot fell. And in the end, he saved the kingdom. And then, well, depending on which version you go, he died or he, right. he was, you know, he retired under the hill or whatever, you know, but he left basically, um, and would return, would be destined to return. Um, there's always this, there's a lot of prophecies in Game of Thrones. One of the ones is the Princess Promise, which is probably Jon Snow that's going to come and, you know, rescue humanity from the Night Walk, White Walkers right. and all that. Um, 
Probably. <laughs> I don't know. Um, sure. And, you know, but, you know, the end of a destiny prophecy like that, the king doesn't live happily ever after. The king puts down a sword one way or the other. Yeah, I don't think we're That's usually have... how that works yeah, in mythology. Yeah, we're not going to have a happy ending. No, we are I think not. We would, I think we <laughs> well, would... we might have a bittersweet ending. Yeah. I, well, I think that, like I said earlier, I think there's going to be a lot of tears. And it's mainly because we've literally seen these actors and these characters grow up in, in front of our eyes. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, almost a decade experience. Almost, yeah. And there's been so much rich character development in this thing. Plot twists and turns that you could not even see. I mean, unless you read the book and still I, I, some of those. Uh, and I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be heartbreaking, not just because of the people we lose, just the fact that we don't have the show on anymore. I think that's gonna be hard. Thankfully, we have lots and lots and lots of television, so hopefully something will yeah. pop up. Soon. And, and I mean, how many shows have you known in recent years where people actually have parties, viewing parties? It's which true. I was at. Sunday in Boylston. I mean, it was like 20 of us watching the show. And, uh, I mean, that brings me back to Twin Peaks days. I think, the, early I think the last time I did that, I mean, occasionally I'll watch a show with friends and right. Game of Thrones being one of them. But the last time I had a, went to a party, I actually hosted a party, was the series finale of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So it's a while. <laughs> I wish I went to that party. I would have had fun that was that. that was fun. Well, actually, that was a long... That was great, but we ended up also having to, to rescue a stuck ferret that got stuck in the couch. <laughs> it's a long story. But, um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't like the finale. Huh? I didn't like the finale of Buffy. Oh, I did. I did. I mean, I love the show, but that's another. Yeah, that's a long. That's that's a long story. Some of the best television, Buffy. First, oh yeah, first yes. three seasons definitely couldn't beat it. Yeah, no, definitely, and, and some of the best episodes can't, even came in the yeah, later seasons. Absolutely, Though the better arcs were two and three. Anyways, we have gone <laughs> way past Game of Thrones now, so we'll be back with more in a minute. But right now, this is Ghost by Annie Brobst. Had my eye on California Took a look at Arizona Thought about New York for a second chance I was feeling tied down in a small town Where the word always gets around And every step I take just knock me down When my mind is pushing forward but my heart is in the moment It's time for me to get up and leave So I'm moving out From the city I need the most And I'm moving out To a new home on the coast When I'm moving out So raise your glass and make a toast And that'll leave me here as nothing but a ghost Well I met him on a Sunday And we hung out on a Monday On Thursday night he promised me the world So I packed it up to Boston Another world I could get lost in The happy ending I thought I deserved but now he says he's moving forward. 
You have been listening to Ghost by Annie Brobst. Annie will be at Quinn's next month and at Indian Ranch with Scotty McCreary in July, then at Local Country Fest, also at Indian Ranch in September. So keep an eye on our calendar listings for more information. And now we're back, and I'm here with Richard Duckett. Hi, Richard. Hi, Victor. And you've got a really interesting subject for us today. What, what, what are we looking at here? Well, you never know what you might find in your crate. Um, <laughs> In the case of uh, Dan Ryan, who's um, director of um, choral studies at Clark University, he um, got a hold of a crate of musical scores and uh, found one. And uh, now, for the first time since um, Pilgrims of Destiny by Canadian American composer Gina Branscombe, is going to be performed at Clark for the first time in. Since 1940. Wow. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's kind of amazing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the composer? Yeah, she was well regarded in her time. Um, she lived from 1981 to 1977. She wrote uh, a lot of um, art songs, um, choral works, oratorios, pieces for orchestra. She also uh, had her own uh, all-women's chorus, the Branscombe Chorale, um, but then just slipped away into obscurity. Um, I think it had happened even before she died, and uh, some people theorize it's because she was a woman composer, and mm. women composers in a good part of, of the 20th century even um, were, were looked down on, weren't taken seriously. Indeed. I mean, there's still, I mean, very few, very prominent ones still. They're, it's still very difficult for. I remember in the past talking to students at the New England Conservatory for Music who were 
<laughs> were laying out just how difficult the road ahead of them were were going to be, and they were all turning towards film scores because they had better option options there. Yes, yes. Uh, um, I mean, Dan Ryan told me that he came across an article um, when Gina Branscombe was being interviewed one time, and uh, uh, the reporter asked her if being a composer interfered with her duties uh, as a wife. Um, so, oh, <laughs> but um, ouch. And the heartbreaking thing is that um, this work, Pilgrims of Destiny, uh, was almost lost, perhaps, for all time. Um, but according to Dan Ryan, it's it's a great work. Um, you know, right up there, he he ranks it with with one of the best works he's uh, ever been involved with. Well, that's a and that's a big endorsement. And so, fortunately, there was. Um, a mezzo-soprano actress in New York City who's also been trying to keep Regina Branscombe flame alive. Uh, she came across um, some settings that Gina Branscombe had written uh, of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's sonnets. Oh. Including How Do I Love Thee, Let Me Count the Ways. And uh, That's cool. And um, so um, her name... Um, if you'll just excuse me for uh, a minute here, um, is Kathleen Shimetta. And um, she, she, she made this discovery of uh, the setting of the Browning sonnet 20 years ago and um, was able to get in touch with Gina Branscombe's family, who apparently were delighted. And um, she recorded um, a CD of, of art songs. So Dan Ryan, after he had found uh, this um, score, which was just a piano part um, uh, on this in this creative music and played it, thought it was great, wondered who Gina, Grans- Gina Branscombe was. So he Googled Gina Branscombe and came across Kathleen Shimeda, and the two of them got, ah. to- the two of them got together. And um, the performing manuscript for Pilgrims of Destiny... Um, I guess doesn't exist anymore. Um, but there are different parts, you know, different vocal parts, scores for different musical parts um, around in the Library of Congress and also the New York City Public Library. So the two of them have been piecing it all together to put together a new performance score. That uh, is an amazing piece of work. And that's something yeah. that probably couldn't have happened even a few decades ago. Right, right. And so... Um, the performance is going to be at Clark University at Atwood Hall on Saturday, April 27th at 7.30. It's free uh, to open to the public. Uh, Gina Branscombe's relatives are expected to be on oh. hand, uh, as is somebody from the uh, Library of uh, Congress. Wow. And the work, as its title might suggest, uh, is about um, the pilgrims who were on the Mayflower um, in 1620. So really, it's a timely um, uh, performance because the 400th anniversary of Plymouth is uh, coming up next year. Indeed. And, and this, this really, all of this really combines to have a kind of a feel of importance about it, doesn't it? Yeah, it makes. As one Clark University student uh, uh, suggested when I talked to her, and Clark students have uh, really embraced this project and are really excited about it. Um, uh, It makes you wonder what else has been lost to time. Well, I have this conversation both with musicians and poets fairly frequently, actually. Uh, People will point out to me that 
you know, oh, there's so much music on the internet now. It's on Bandcamp and SoundCloud, and it's everywhere. And I'm like, yeah, and a lot of it's good. And how much has been lost? You know, before all that, because there was pretty much the same amount of people making music 40 years ago, and how much of that has vanished? Yeah, it, one good thing about YouTube is that um, if I can go from highbrow to lowbrow, that for is a the second, nature uh, of this podcast. Uh, <laughs> we uh, were talking about Game of Thrones a few minutes ago. Hello, uh, I remember one great thing about YouTube. I think, or, and the internet in general, is that you know there were a lot of songs I sort of liked growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you couldn't wonder what happened to them because you never hear them played anymore or hear hear about the artist. But it's amazing you can go onto YouTube and actually find it, uh, listen to it, and read that people have commented about it. And somebody actually took the time to uh, preserve it, you know, make that recording and, and put it on. And thank up. goodness they did, because yeah. you know there are songs that they're not in they're not in print anymore. Nobody's nobody's pressing those records. They're not up on Spotify. So I mean, you've got some bootlegs. They're the only way to get them. There are reasons some works, let's face it, get for Oh, of course. And it's because uh, <laughs> they weren't any good to begin with. Well, but, there is uh, that, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I find that listening to some old singles uh, that I remembered uh, that had been forgotten, you could say, uh, some of them I, I realized that, well, maybe I, uh, I, I, I was uh, over... Uh, Fondly remembering it, but others oh, they still they still sound good, and I'd like to share them with people. Uh, so, um, and so yeah, come returning to Gina Branscombe. This apparently <laughs> is, is is a great work. Um, you know, we'll all be hearing it for the first time when it's performed um, on April twenty seventh. And coincidentally, um, musicians of the Old Post Road. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a Boston area group who um, perform um, Baroque music uh, as well as uh, music up until the 19th or even 20th century. They have a reputation for rediscovering manuscripts. They do. They come to Worcester twice a year. One of their founders is named Dan Ryan, but it's a different Dan Ryan. It okay, that's out. a really uh, weird coincidence. Uh, it is a coincidence. At first, when I heard about the uh, clock... Um, Pilgrims of Destiny. I assumed it was the same Dan Ryan, but oh. it isn't. Um, but anyway, the Dan Ryan of uh, Musicians of the Old Post Road are going to be coming to the Worcester Historical Museum on May 2nd for a concert called Stars in Their Eyes. And this is going to feature uh, what they call little-known, and indeed I'd never heard of them, uh, musical compositions, compositions penned by some of the Enlightenment's most important scientific minds. So these were scientists who also um, wrote music. Oh, excellent. Um, includes um, uh, a work by uh, the father of astronomy, William Herschel, uh, a quartet for flute and strings by the astronomer Carl Friedrich Bumgarten, a string quartet by the English composer and author of astronomy books John Marsh, and a symphonia for flute and strings by the Norwegian composer and inventor uh, Johann Daniel Berlin. So I don't think uh, anybody's heard any of these works. Uh, so. I, I have never heard of a single person you have just <laughs> mentioned. <laughs> so I, I guess they're, they're more famous as uh, scientists, astronomers, but um, they also put... Um, put their thoughts down musically and they as had, well. They had a different side, and we're getting a chance to hear that here, which is which is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see 
again, if, if they're any good or if, or if they, they should be part of the uh, regular concert repertoire. I mean, there is something to be, there's, there's something heartening about the fact that a musician of that quality, musicians of that quality, looked at that music and said, oh yeah, I'll put my name behind this and go on it. Because you get the feeling if it was terrible, they probably left a few on the cutting room floor. Right, right, right. But, but it's funny because there was a event in, or there's an event coming up in Brooklyn with I think a very similar name, which is Poets and Scientists. So, so the same concept, basically. So there seems to be this weird collusion between the arts and sciences lately. Yes, yes. Well, musicians, certainly, you know, classical musicians, they, they've always had uh, uh, a connection with mathematics. And, um, Indeed. Um, you know, a Mozart concerto is said to have a mathematical logic behind it. Um, uh, I was always terrible at mathematics, uh, <laughs> which is why I've uh, never really composed any music. So, um, so there's another uh, link there. Excellent, and of course, you know, in the if you if you were lucky enough to get an education in the Enlightenment during the Enlightenment, you got a very well-rounded education. So. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, you would have uh, studied Greek and Latin, and um, uh, which which was another a weak point of, of mine. Yeah, I'm I'm doing my Spanish. I've lost all my high school Spanish at the moment, <laughs> so I'm doing duotrope at the moment to try to get it back. But all right, well, that's that's you know it's you know if I can add one weird morbid point at the end of this, <laughs> which is horrible. Um, no, it's just I have this conversation. Poets always joke that they'll be famous when they're dead, and I I have the conversation over and over again. It's like, look, the rights to your poetry fall to your family. And usually your family is very ill-equipped to deal with publishing. <laughs> they don't know how to, most of them don't know how to do that. It's, it's a very specialized field, so they get lost and work disappears. I know great poets from, that I knew in the 80s and 90s whose work has practically vanished already. So I, 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 I'm always heartened when we have things being rediscovered like this. So yeah, I th- I I I'm hoping that more of that comes in the world, comes in the as our ability to com- to compare notes and share information grows. Yeah, it's easier to do it now um, to rediscover things uh, than it was. You can so. find out what one you know. Google find out who's got another part of the piece of the puzzle on the other side of the country. Yeah, yeah. So um, so maybe um, Pilgrims of Destiny will inspire. Other people to sort of um, look in their crates and see what might be there. I hope so. I hope so. All right. If that that wraps this up, you have been listening to Worcester Culture Watch. For more, read our arts and entertainment coverage in the Worcester Telegram and Gazette and online at telegram.com. As always, our music was composed by DJ Manipulator. Thanks, and we'll be back soon. Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.